You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. Tonight, we're kicking off a series, three-week series, on revival. Ooh, revival. It's called Why Not Us? And this entire series was birthed out of a word, a prophetic word that Pastor Sarah gave to our students, our student ministry at Blocks Conference. Who was at that Blocks Conference this year? It was really powerful. And Pastor Sarah, she came up at the end of a service and she prophesied to us because she said that she had been reminded of a story of a kid, a normal kid just like you, who was in middle school and one year decided, I'm gonna get a book with all the students' names in my school and I'm just gonna walk around my school every day over the summer and pray over those names. That's all he did. And by the start of school, this kid experienced a revival. His entire school, a thir- I think it was two thirds of his school was born again through a, through a small little Bible study that he created in his middle school. And so she said to us, why can't that happen with us? Why can't something like that, something extravagant, something miraculous, something that we're talking about years from now, why can't that happen with New Song students? And so she challenged us with that question. Why can't revival happen through us, through New Song students? And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about in this series how God can possibly definitely do that through New Song students and use us to change not just the people in this room, but our city, our state. Man, who's, who's big enough to dream our nation, right? Like God wants to do that, bring revival. And that sounds good. That sounds really big and exciting and amazing. Revival is like a buzzword in the church. If you've heard people say it before, it's kind of like we throw it at things like, hey, come to my revival night at my church. But like, what even is revival? And that's what I'm titling this message tonight, if you want to take notes. What even is revival? That's what we're going to be answering tonight, because this is a question that we throw around a lot in church culture. But I want to give you some clear black and white. This is what it looks like. This is what it can look like in our ministry. And we're going to be uh, doing this by looking at two things. My goal tonight is I want to do two things. I want to look at some revivals that have happened in Scripture to give us some context for what it can look like. And then I wanna go fast forward into some modern day revivals that have happened in the last 300 years or so to give us some goals for what to look for. And it's gonna be really good. I hope you're ready for this. Habakkuk 3, 2. You ready for this? You ready for this, New Song students? I'm gonna pray. We'll read this, we'll pray, and we're gonna jump into this, this passage. Habakkuk 3, 2, it says this. The prophet Habakkuk praying this to God. He says, oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Somebody say revive it. In the midst of these years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In other translations, it says, make yourself known. In wrath, remember mercy. All right, let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes, and we're going to jump into this. Father, I thank you so much for your presence in this space. I thank you for every heart in this room. And God, I just pray that this series, the next three weeks, that you would teach us how to dream God dreams. God, I pray that you would teach us 
as we look back in our history, not in our life's history, but in our, our faith's history, in our Christian history. God, I pray that as we look back at these revivals that happened in scripture, these revivals that have happened in the last 300 years, I just pray that these stories would fan a flame in our hearts tonight that these stories would fan a flame and give us hope and even cause some of us in this room to believe and to dream that you would do that in our time, in our schools, in our midst. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak and inspire and minister to every heart tonight. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Okay, revival. Somebody say, revival. 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 This is a very churchy word. It's a, it's, a, it's a buzzword. It's a word that, have you ever heard somebody say Christianese before? Nope. Christianese, it's like your Christian like lingo that we say all the time, like, I'll pray for you, that's Christianese, or like, uh, I don't know, like, love you, brother, or we just loved on them. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, we just loved on them, that's like Christianese? Well, revival is a Christianese word, and it's a word that's thrown around a lot. It's used a lot, and I believe sometimes it's used with a lack of understanding. We say it because it sounds good, but sometimes we say it and we don't know what we're talking about. Sometimes we say it and it actually brings a lot of confusion because we don't even know what we're aiming for, what we're asking God for. Sometimes this word revival can be covered in a lot of like mystery and, uh, and it's just ominous and we don't know exactly what we're looking for. But I believe that this thing, revival, is actually something that is so clear. It's so black and white it's something that we can look almost like scientifically and we can study and we can learn from the past and see in patterns what God wants from us and what he can do through these mighty moves of God. So my goal tonight is to do two things. I, I, I just said them, but I wanna remind you. I wanna do two things. I wanna look at scripture because we always need to go to the word first, right? We're gonna go to the word and we're gonna see what the word has to say and what the word shows us about revivals, what that shows us. And then I wanna fast forward to some more modern day Revivals, And this is how cool the Holy Spirit is. Y'all know the Holy Spirit's like writing everything. He's writing every detail of your life. This is how cool the Holy Spirit is. We didn't even plan this, but this series is literally a part two to everything that we talked about at camp. Now, I know not everybody was at camp, but who was at camp? We got a lot of people who are at camp. If you weren't at camp, let me just share with you what every session was about. And I wanna show you how everything we talked about at camp, this series is quite literally a part two. It's just a tail end of everything we talked about. So in night one of camp, we talked about this. God comes where he's wanted. Do you remember that? God comes where people are hungry for him. And so we asked the question, what does it look like to live a hungry life? How do we sustain a hungry life after God? Night number two, we talked about how you belong to the family of God. Do you remember this? Yes. We talked about this. We asked the question, are you living like a son or a daughter in the family of God? Or are you living with an orphan mentality? The third night, Pastor David, he preached on how God wants to give us a heart for the lost. Do you remember that? Yes. We asked the question, do you have a heart for the lost? When you see broken people in your school, on your team, in your life, is all you see is their brokenness and their fallenness and how bad they look? Or do you see the fact that God actually wants to change that? Do you have a heart for the lost? Now, I say all that to say this. When those three things are in play, what were those three things? People with hungry hearts who are living in the family of God, 
who are hungry to see the lost changed, when you have those three things in a church, revival is the product. Revival is the fruit of those three things in place. And everything we talked about in camp was those three things in place. And so if we're walking and living and practicing that out, this series, what we're going into, is the fruit of all of that. And so what even is revival? Look at your neighbor and say, what even is revival? What even is it? Well, I'm gonna give you the definition right now. And this is the best, most clear definition I could find. I thought it was so good. It'll be up on the screen behind me. It's from a guy named Mark Driscoll. He says this, revival is a surprising touch of the Holy Spirit that accelerates kingdom ministry. I'm gonna say that again, because that's really good. Revival is a surprising touch of the Holy Spirit that accelerates kingdom ministry. I like that definition. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. What I love about this definition is that it's broad enough to encompass a lot of different forms and expressions of revival, because it doesn't tell us that revival is this exactly. It says it's just a special touch of the Holy Spirit that accelerates kingdom ministry. So this definition, I love it because it's broad to include a lot of different expressions of revival, but it's clear in the sense that it it tells us what is and what is not revival. Here's what I mean by that. Before I ever did any research on revival, before I ever looked into revival history, I'm talking about me, Jackson, before I ever learned about this stuff, my understanding of revival was tiny. And so when I heard this word revival, you know what I thought of? I'm just being completely honest. I thought of an all-night prayer meeting. That's it. I thought of an all-night prayer meeting, like that's what revival is. It's an all-night prayer meeting with lots of tears and maybe some signs and wonders taking place, some miracles, but that was it. That's all I had as far as my knowledge of what a revival is. And can I just be, can I be completely honest with you, New Song students? When that was all my, my, my understanding of what revival is, I'm thinking to myself, okay, revival sounds great and all, but like, let's just say it happens here. Do I really want to be praying all night long? Like, can we be honest in church? Like, is that something I even really want to experience? Is that something I want? If I'm asking for revival to come and it comes, would I be happy about that, right? This is what I had to think about. And this is what the definition, what I love about this definition is it's broad enough to show us, well, revival isn't just an all-night prayer meeting. It actually isn't just signs and wonders taking place. There's a lot of different forms on the way the revival works. And this is why I think this definition is perfect. I wanna read it again to you. Revival is a surprising touch of the Holy Spirit that accelerates kingdom ministry. Now, here's what, I, here's what I think is cool about that. That surprising touch from God, it may include nonstop prayer. It might not. That surprising touch from the Holy Spirit may include healings. It might not. But what makes a revival legitimate is not necessarily all-night prayer meetings or signs and wonders, What makes a revival legitimate is not necessarily what people experience during the revival, but the fruit that's produced from the revival. I'm gonna say that again. What makes a revival legitimate is not necessarily what people experience during the revival, but it's the fruit that's produced from the revival. Now, this is going to blow your mind, so buckle up, New Song students. Get ready for this point. It's a face melter. You're not ready for it, all right? But a revival is only a revival 
if something is revived. Oh my gosh, Pastor Jackson. A revival is only a revival if something has been revived. Okay, so what, is, what does it mean to revive something? Well, here's the definition of revive. To restore to life or consciousness. Now listen to me. This is quite literally what takes place when a surprising move of God hits a group of people and then kingdom ministry is accelerated. Here's what happens in a revival. Hearts that are asleep to how good God is are awakened to how good God is. Churches that are completely dead in religion are made alive by the Spirit, and they're, they're coming into not religion, but a relationship with God. Large groups of people who are sinners, walking dead people, are brought into the church, and they are born again and made alive in Christ. This is what revival looks like. It's not awakening unless sinners are born again. It's not awakening unless dead churches come to life. It's not awakening unless sleepy Christians come alive. This is what revival looks like. Now remember, this may look different in different places and different spaces, but in order for us to put the term revival on it, something has to be awoken. Something has to be made from being dead to being in a state of now being alive. Okay, so now we know what, by definition, what a revival is, but what can a revival look like? Because it can look like a lot of different things. Well, first, to explain this, I wanna go broad. Somebody say broad. broad. I wanna go broad, then we're gonna zone in on two stories in scripture, and then I wanna give you three uh, modern day revivals. So let's look broad real quick. I got this list from a guy named Chet Swearingen. That's a cool name, Chet Swearingen. And um, these are nine, somebody say nine. nine. These are nine patterns that you will find in every single revival. So they all look different, but there's gonna be nine, maybe more, but nine patterns that you'll find in every single one. Number one is this. You should take these notes if you're, if you're, if you're taking notes tonight. Number one is this. All revivals occurred during times of moral darkness and national depression. Now think about this. The worse the nation looks, the worse our world looks, the, the, yeah, the worse your school looks, guess what? the more ripe and ready our world is for revival. Because look at this, John 1, 5 says this, the light shines in the what? In the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't know who said this next quote. I've heard it said before, and I think it's beautiful. When the world is at its darkest, the church is at her brightest. So think about this. No longer can we have the excuse of, man, we just live in a fallen sinful world, and look how bad that is, man, our nation is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> My school is full of, of, of sinners, of terrible people. No more can we do that because guess what? The darker it is, the more primed and ready they are for revival. Biblically, when we look at this. Number two, here's the second pattern. Each began in the heart of a consecrated servant of God who became the energizing power behind it. Okay, that is a lot of words to just say this. It just takes one. Every single revival, it had a group of people. It might have had a group of believers, but they all tie back to just one heart, just one hungry person that said, God, I want your kingdom built more than I want to see my kingdom built. 
every single revival started with just one hungry heart. Somebody say one. Number three is this. Each revival rested on the word of God, and, the most, and most were the result of proclaiming God's word with power. What does that mean? In revivals, guess what's elevated? Not a celebrity pastor, not a hype church, not a specific group of people. The thing that's elevated in a revival is the word of God, the word of God. And sometimes in, in, in most of these cases is everything else is stripped down. And the word of God becomes the thing that we hunger for the most. Number four is this. All revivals resulted in a return to the worship of God. That sounds kind of obvious, but here's what that means. God is the focus, not my behavior modification, not the way he wants to bless my life. I just Revival is when I just come to church and God literally is the only focus. Number five is this. Is this helping anybody tonight? Is this good? Number five. Each revival witnessed the destruction of idols where they existed. We'll get into that in a second. And number six, each revival, there was a recorded separation from sin. This is cool. In every single revival that takes place, people start losing their taste for the things that they used to taste for. Like the, the sins that used to look good and appeasing to them, they don't want them anymore. And it's not like from a place of like, oh man, I need to get my life all clean up so I can be in this revival. No, in the revivals, it's a natural progression of, I don't even like this stuff anymore. Like people just leaving their sin and showing up in the church. Number seven, in every revival, people returned to obeying God's laws. Seems pretty self-explanatory. And number eight, there was a restoration of great joy and gladness. Man, we've been in the joy series, Philippians. Who would be down for some great restoration of joy and gladness in our city? Let's go. Let's go. And the last one is this. This is a very important one, so I want you to write this down. Each revival was followed by a period of national. Somebody say national. National National prosperity. Okay. Revivals at some point or another, whether it's instantly or over a period of time, it's only a revival if it touches a national level. Here's what I mean by this. Revival isn't just like, wow, our church doubled since last year. Like God is moving in our church. And last year we had a thousand people come to our church. And now this year we have 2000. Now that's not a bad thing, right? Praise God for growth. That's good. But we can't call that revival. That's not necessarily revival because um, just because your church grew really quickly, there has to be some sort of widespread nationwide impact where God uses a specific group of people, a specific church to touch an an entire generation, an entire nation. Now, these are some of the patterns, some of the nine patterns that you're going to find in every single one of the stories that we're about to get into. So without further ado, I know we just covered a lot of information real quick, but this is week one of a series. Y'all know that's how we do. We cover a lot in week one. Y'all still hanging in with me? We're going to go into some revival stories now. First in the, in the scriptures, and then we'll move into three others. So the first one is this. I think if we're not careful, we can tend to think that revival is only a New Testament church thing. Like that's just a New Testament church thing. And sometimes if we're, if we're really not careful, we can only think that one revival happened in all of scripture, and that was at Pentecost. 
But I'm here to tell you tonight that revival is all throughout the Bible, from the front to the back, because what is revival? It's God moving in a surprising way to accelerate his kingdom ministry to change a nation. If, and if that's the case, if that's what we're calling revival, then the, then the Bible is filled to the brim with stories of God touching a person's heart to then touch a, na a nation. So one of the first stories I want to look at is a, it's a children's ministry classic. You guys know this one. But it's the story in the Old Testament of a guy named Jonah. A guy named Jonah. Now, typically when we read this story, Jonah, there's, there's some really practical lessons that we can pull from Jonah's life. I think one of them is a story of like trusting God's call for your life, right? Like that's a good lesson that we can pull from the story of Jonah. I think a good lesson we can pull from the story of Jonah is don't just trust God's call, but obey God's call, right? Hello. <laughs> we got to obey God's call. We can't just hear it. We got to obey it because Jonah didn't do that. I think a lesson we can learn from Jonah is like, try not to get found in the belly of a whale. Hopefully none of you guys have found yourself in the belly of a whale recently, but sometimes we look at the story of Jonah and Jonah is the focus of the message. Jonah is the subject that we're trying to pull meaning from, but you need to know Jonah is not the subject of the story. Guess who's the subject of the story? Nineveh. Nineveh is the subject of the story of Jonah. Let's do a quick run through of this story. Look at this. Jonah chapter one, verse one. Here's what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now listen to me. Right there in the first two chapters of this book, we already see two of those revival patterns taking place. Two of them in the first two chapters. What's the first one we see? We see widespread nationwide darkness and sin. We've got a nation that is far from God. David Guzik says this, the city of Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian empire and a large and prominent city in its day. It was not a city of Israel at all. God called Jonah to go to a evil, pagan, Gentile city and call them to repentance. Y'all need to know that Jonah or Nineveh was not Jonah's first pick. Like that was not the place he was hoping God would call him. Nineveh was quite literally one of Jonah's enemies, the worst of the worst during his time. But Nineveh, listen to me, was a perfect candidate for revival. Why? Because Nineveh was bad. Because Nineveh was dark. Because Nineveh was fallen and sinful and completely asleep to God. New Song students, you need to know that there are places and spaces in your life that we see as dead and we see as too far gone. And you know how God sees them? He sees them as places that he wants to send revival to. Like some of you need to recognize that your school, it probably looks a lot more like Nineveh than your church family, right? Your school probably looks really bad. You probably walk through your school and you think, man, the people in this place are so far gone. They want nothing to do with God. I hear some crazy wild stuff said in the hallways. It just seems like nobody in this school would want anything to do with Jesus. And I get it. 
I've been there before. But Nineveh, listen to me, is a reminder to us that the very places of darkness are the very places that God wants to send revival to. It's the very places where God says, yeah, I can work with that. Yeah, Nineveh, I want them. I know, Jonah, you don't think I want them, but I want Nineveh. And so I want you to call them to back to me. So the first revival pattern we see is a fallen nation. But the second revival pattern we see in this is, guess what? God just needed one. God just needed one person, just one heart that was willing to obey and think about this. This is what I love about the story of Jonah. The one heart that God chose was a pretty imperfect heart, right? Like Jonah was a prophet by title, kind of like how you and I are Christians by title, but he was not the best prophet we see in scripture. Jonah was a reluctant prophet. Jonah was a disobedient prophet. Any disobedient Christians here? (laughs) I'm raising my hand. I think we could all raise our hands. Jonah was disobedient. Jonah was reluctant. Jonah, he had prejudice against the Ninevites. He didn't want to go there. Jonah went in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He tried to run from the call of God, and yet God still used him. I don't know about you, but that encourages me because I don't get it right all the time. But I do want to see God move through my, through my life, right? Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but this is really encouraging to me because God's not waiting for you and I to get our life perfect before he can use us. Like, he really isn't. You've probably heard that said before, but it, it is, it, it's worth repeating. Like, God is not waiting to use you in order for you to look like just like Christ because God uses you on your journey of becoming like Christ, not when you are like Christ. I want to say that again. God uses us to change our world on our journey of becoming like Jesus, not when we have arrived at becoming like Jesus. And so look at this. God sees the darkness in this nation of Nineveh and this somewhat willing disciple, Jonah. God's like, I guess I can use you. He kind of course corrects him a little bit. He kind of makes Jonah's life very, very difficult, would you say? He makes his life difficulty, but he eventually gets him on the road to Nineveh. Jonah says yes. God gives him a second chance. He says, go to Nineveh and tell them that judgment is coming, but I will save them if they turn to me. So Jonah obeys, and something miraculous takes place. Jonah shares this message, and to his surprise, they received it. The entire nation received the message that he gave them. Look at this. I want to read six verses to you of the story. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. Praise God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and removed his robes and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. This message from Jonah made it from the courtyards all the way to the palace. And the king issues an entire decree, like a nationwide decree that we're following God now. So they all fast and they put on sackcloth and ashes. And I'm going to skip down to, let's see, verse 9. And it says this. Who knows? God may turn. This is the king talking. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Look at this. This is the fruit of revival. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is a crazy story, y'all. This is a crazy story of an Old Testament revival that takes place, and in those six verses, we see the rest of those revival patterns taking place. We see the message of God's word exalted. We see people repenting. We see people coming back to God, getting rid of their idols. We see a nationwide impact from a single man's message. Think about in our time today how drastic that would be. That would be like God calling you. Somebody say me. me. I want you to picture this. This is like God calling you and saying, hey, tomorrow at lunch, I want you to stand up on your lunch table and preach the gospel. <laughs> and uh, this is a year of boldness, right? So you're a little scared, but you're like, Holy Spirit, fill me. And so you go. Let's just say you obey. And you step on that table, and you start preaching the gospel to your lunchroom. And then to your surprise, listen to me, to your surprise, people aren't throwing food at you. They're not throwing slushies at you. You look around the lunchroom, and everybody's on their knees repenting of their sins. Imagine that taking place. Now imagine, imagine the local news hears about this and they're like, we're gonna do a story about this. So they, they send the camera team, they start interviewing you. It's all over the, the local news um, on the night. And then the next week, you get a call from the president. And the president, Joe Biden, calls you. <laughs> He's our president right now. He calls you. And listen to me. He says, tell me what took place there. So you give Joe Biden the message that you gave to your school. You tell him about the response your school had. And then the president issues a nationwide decree that says, hey, America is surrendering back to God. Can you imagine if this took place today? Listen to me. That's what happened at Nineveh. That's revival. This is what took place in Nineveh. God experienced, Nineveh experienced a special touch from the Holy Spirit that, guess what? Accelerated kingdom ministry. And we get at the end of, uh, at the, end of the story, we get this little detail. It's so cool from God. We find out that there was 120,000 people that lived in Nineveh. So listen to me. Through one man, through one message, through one decree from the king, 120,000 people were saved from destruction. Think about that. That's revival, right? That's revival. An Old Testament story of God touching a group of people and kingdom ministry being accelerated. Is this ex exciting anybody's faith tonight? This is amazing. That's in the Old Testament. Now, the second one, I'm not going to spend hardly any time on this because I want to get into these other stories, but this is the one that we're all familiar with. It's the revival that takes place at Pentecost. Pentecost. Now, Acts 1, we know it starts off a little bumpy because everybody thinks Jesus Christ is gonna be the Messiah. He dies on the cross, they're all disappointed. They think it's over, they think hope is lost. But to their, to their surprise, Jesus beats death, he's resurrected, but as soon as they get their hope back, guess what, Jesus is like, peace out, I gotta go. Got some stuff to take care of. So Jesus leaves the disciples quicker than he shows up and all they have is this, a command from Jesus that says, go and make disciples, but wait for the Holy Spirit. That's it. All they have is a command from Jesus and a lot of people who don't like them. So they find themselves in an upper room one day and they're waiting. And they're not just like twiddling their thumbs waiting. They are praying. 
They're hungry. They're seeking after God and a special touch from the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit falls on them, speaking in tongues. All this crazy stuff is taking place. Peter, the, the Peter that says the wrong thing at all the wrong times, he gets up and he starts preaching a message and everybody's like, Peter, is that you? And Peter's like, I don't know what's happening. And he's preaching this message. He preaches this word and 3,000 people are added to the church in one day. Then by the end of chapter four, we see a lot of things take place. We see kingdom community happen. People are selling all of their possessions and giving them to the poor. They're walking in biblical love and community. They're sitting under the word of God. Signs and wonders are bursting. And by the end of chapter four, we find out that 2,000 more people have already been added to the church. This is a way revival looks. God touches a group of people that then touch a nation that then change history forever because we know that Pentecost was the start of the church. We're here today because of what happened at Pentecost. Amen? Amen. So this is a way that revival can look. But what I want to show you tonight is that these are both stories in Scripture, which is a good thing. Like, Scripture is where we go first. But these are two revivals that take place both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But if you're only understanding a revival is stories that happen in scripture, then I'm here to tell you that you're gonna have no context for something to dream about because both of those things happened thousands and thousands of years ago. In the Old Testament, I don't even know how long ago Nineveh was, but Pentecost happened 2,000 years ago. So if that's the only revival you know about, why would you ever ask for something to happen if it, if it happened 2,000 years ago? Well, here's what I wanna tell you tonight through these three stories. There are multiple, I'm talking multiple upon multiple other Pentecosts, special touches from God that are not recorded in scripture, but they are recorded in the history books. They happened, they literally happened for us to look back and to have our faith stirred to say, God, do it again in our time, in our midst. Why not us? If it happened with them, why not us? Why not New Song students? So, Y'all ready to get into these three stories? Yeah. I said, are y'all ready to get into these three stories? Yeah. I'll try and go through these uh, quickly, but clearly, and then uh, hopefully, man, your faith is stirred. Because when I was going through these stories this week, I just got fired up. I was like, let's go. I want to see God change our city. So the first is with a guy named, now this is a name, y'all. Are y'all ready for this? <laughs> this, is, this happened, this revival took place in the early 1700s with a guy <clears throat> named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. <laughs> I'm not joking. Real dude. Can we get a picture of Zinzendorf? When I'm written down in the history books, I hope that's my pose. Okay. Check this out. Shh, shh, shh. Stay with me, y'all. Stay with me. This is the revival that takes place with, I'm just going to call him Count Zinzendorf, all right? And this group of believers called the Moravians. Somebody say the Moravians. Okay, so let's talk about this story. History class, story time. Y'all ready for this? This happened in the early 1700s. Now, Count Zinzendorf was a guy who grew up in wealth. He has some money. He grew up in influence. He was very well taken care of from the start of his life. But at an early age, Count Zinzendorf had a love 
for God. Like he just genuinely loved God. Anybody in here got saved in kids ministry? Like gave their life to the Lord at an early age? That was, that was Zinzendorf. Like loved God. I know you guys, you guys can't laugh at his name every single time I say it, okay? But in his teen years, so he loves God at an early age. In his teen years, in the 1700s, he starts a group called the Order of the Mustard Seed, which still exists to this day. It's a discipleship group that he started because he wanted to see people being disciples everywhere they went. So he started the Order of the Mustard Seed to help train up people who would be disciples that were stay-at-home moms, that were factory workers, that were people who, who were just living normal lives. He wanted to see them live as believers, as powerful believers. And so we see in his life at an early age just this love for God. But in his early 20s, he has a marking individual encounter with the presence of God. And he's in an art museum. And he's looking at this painting and it's a painting called uh, Behold the Man. And it's a picture of Jesus on the cross. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. And Zinzendorf is just looking at this painting. And he's just in awe. He's like taking it in. And his eyes are drawn to the bottom of the painting. And at the bottom it says this, All I have done for you, all this I have done for you, what will you do for me? It's Jesus talking. It says, all of this I've done for you, Zinzendorf, what will you do for me? And so in this moment, he's just looking at a painting and the Lord speaks to him. Y'all know God wants to speak to you in every single space and place you're at. You can be watching a TV show and God drops something in your spirit. This is what happened with him. He's looking at this painting and he just says in his heart, I will live for you, Jesus. Like I'm gonna live a life of sacrifice for you, Jesus. So this happens in his early 20s. He makes a decision that I'm gonna live for Jesus even if it costs me everything. So fast forward a few years. Remember, Zinzendorf has a lot of wealth. So he lives on this huge uh, land. He's got a beautiful house with uh, like, a, like a valley and this huge field of land. And one day he has a divine appointment with a guy named Christian David. And this guy stumbles on his land and he's a refugee. He's a part of this group of believers called the Moravians. And this group of believers are being persecuted. And so Christian David, he's running for his life and ends up on Zinzendorf's land. They start talking and Zinzendorf does something amazing. He says, hey, you're running, you're a refugee. Why don't you just live on my land? So in 1722, Zinzendorf and Christian David, they cut down the first tree on his land and they start to build what becomes an entire refugee community on his property. So four years later, the Moravians, an entire group of people, have their own community on his land called Henhurt. And they're in Germany. And in 1726, a critical moment takes place where everything was about to fall. Everything was in shambles because this entire group of the Moravians they started to experience crazy division. Everybody's fighting. Everybody's upset. There's gossip. People are upset about ways that they're going to believe in the scriptures. They're having divisions on theology, on how they're going to run church in this community. It's looking like this community is ripping itself apart. And this is a turning point moment where everything changed in this person's life, in Zinzendorf's life. He decides to do something crazy. He lays everything down. He lays his house his wealth, 
his career in politics down, and he moves into the community on his property. He begins to go house to house throughout the summer of 1727. He goes to every single house in this refugee community, and he begs and he pleads for these people to come back into right relationship. He's like, please, will you forgive your brother and your sister? Will you come back to brotherly love? He does this for an entire summer, and guess what happens? They forgive, they repent, and at the end of the summer of 1927, they host a love feast, this whole community of Moravians. And during this love feast, they're taking communion, and the moment they take communion, the Holy Spirit falls on the chapel so thick that they call this the Moravian Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit falls on this community and people are writing in their journals. They, they write from this encounter, they say, in heaven or on earth, I did not know. They didn't know if they were on earth or on heaven in this moment. And from this little Pentecost that they experience, this, this refugee community is flipped upside down because from that moment, they started a one-hour uh, one block prayer meeting that went going for 100 years straight without stopping. They prayed for 100 years straight, 24-7 after this Pentecost. Now think about this. Think about being, this is not pretty. Think about being in 1700s Germany in the winter. It's three in the morning and you're, you're signed up to pray in the prayer room. Nobody's gonna see you pray. Nobody's gonna care if you ever prayed. It's not gonna be on social media, but you get up anyway to pray because you have a burden for the lost. You have a burden for the world. These people were praying and there was nothing glamorous about it. And from this prayer movement was uh, five years later, the Moravian missions movement is birthed where they start sending Moravian missionaries all throughout the entire world. And this was the first Protestant missions movement to exist. So check this out. This is Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians. That's the first revival that takes place. The next one, and this ties in with the Moravians, is with a guy named John Wesley and the Methodist movement. You guys ever heard of a Methodist church? Well, this, this entire denomination came from a guy named John Wesley. And John Wesley, are you all cool with you keep doing this story time? Are you all hanging with me? John Wesley was the 15th child of 19 kids. Big family, right? And at a very early age, John Wesley, he almost loses his life in a house fire. His house is caught up in flames. The family, they all get their kids out, but they got 19 kids. So they forgot about John Wesley. And he is hanging out of this second story, second story window. There's a fire. And long story short, they get him out. And his mom looks at John Wesley and he, she, she, she starts to, to call him a brand plucked from the fire. So she looks at John Wesley and she basically knew, okay, there's a special calling on this guy's life. So John Wesley grows up and he kind of has this like religious, like pious way that he followed Jesus, like very pharmaceutical. Like he loved God, but it was very religious and he worked really hard and he did all of the right things, but it was kind of works-based religion. And when he's in college, he, started, he starts this discipleship group called the Holy Club. And um, when he graduates, he gets ordained and he feels called to missions. So he leaves England, he gets on a boat and he travels to the colonies in America. Now check this out. This is where his story gets crazy. 
John Wesley is on a boat to America, and he experiences a crazy storm on this boat, so much to the point that he thinks he's going to die. Everybody's throwing like storage and clothing and everything off of the boat. He's terrified for his life, so he goes down to the bottom of the boat, and you know what he finds at the bottom of a boat? Moravians. Moravian Christians praying. They're in the middle of this storm, and there's women and children and men, and they're not, they're not scared for their life. They're in peace. They're praying. They're worshiping God. And John Wesley looks at these Moravians, and he starts to be tormented by the fact that he's scared while they're not. He starts to think to himself, I, I say I'm a believer, but here I am on this boat afraid to die, and these Moravian missionaries could care less because they know where they're going. So long story short, he makes it to America. He tries to start a church. He fails. He tries to get married. He fails. He gets on a boat, goes back to England. By the time he gets back to England, he is, he's feeling like so much of a failure. He feels like, man, I tried to start a church. I failed. I tried to get married. I failed. He's at the point where he's questioning, am I even saved? I'm questioning my own salvation. So he finds himself in a Moravian church service. He hears the gospel being preached from the book of Romans. And he says that a strange warmth came into my heart. And he just has the revelation that, oh, I'm saved by grace, not by my works. So John Wesley gives his life to the Lord. He rededicates his life. And from that moment, we see that he changes the history of, of England forever and eventually the world. He ends up doing something that he was very out of his comfort zone, but he had a buddy of his who was constantly telling him, hey, John, you need to preach the gospel. And John Wesley, he starts to realize that the Church of England is only ministering to the rich and the powerful, but not to the poor, not to the peasants, not to the people who can't, who can't make it there. And so he decides to go horseback across all of England and open air preach. So he does this for the majority of his life, and it's said that by the time John Wesley's life ended, he had ridden thousands upon thousands of miles on horseback, preaching the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people. And we see the first great awakening come to England. And eventually, the entire Methodist denomination is birthed from a single dude's obedience. Amen. So John Wesley, we got the Zinzendorf and the Moravians, but this one's my favorite. And I want to invite the band to come up as we get ready to close. This one's my favorite. It's called the Businessmen's Revival. The Businessmen's Revival. And this one is one that has kind of been forgotten, but it's actually more recent. It takes place in New York City in 1857. And it's with this guy named Christian Lamphere. I think we got a picture of him up there. Where's Christian Lamphere? Christian Lamphere. There he is. Yeah. So he lives in New York City during the Industrial Revolution. And at this point in America, Christianity is a dying faith. Like people are looking at the faith and they're like, we don't need God anymore. We don't need religion. We don't need the faith. God is dead. This is, what is, this is kind of the language in culture. And Jeremiah Lamphere is a young businessman that feels called to evangelism. So he starts going around. He starts preaching the gospel, knocking on doors, praying for people. But Jeremiah, he often feels discouraged. He often feels like, man, I just don't know if I'm making an impact. So one day, Jeremiah has a powerful encounter 
during just a one hour prayer with like him himself and his Bible. Anybody ever decided to just like spend a couple minutes with God, just you in your room and like the Lord met you there? This is exactly what happens with Jeremiah Lamphere. He has this just one hour prayer meeting by himself. And he says that he leaves this meeting with God so refreshed by the presence of God that he has this idea. He thinks, man, this is what New York City needs. What if I just hosted a one hour prayer meeting and invited people to come and tired, weary, depressed people, businessmen could come on their lunch break and pray for an hour and then go back to work refreshed. So you know what Jeremiah Lamphere does? He finds a church, he finds a space. This dude prints 60,000 flyers. Somebody say, go big. <laughs> this dude prints 60,000 flyers about this prayer meeting, plasters them all throughout New York City, and he's at his first prayer meeting. It's on a Wednesday, midweek prayer, just like at New Song Students. He opens up the doors to the room. He's in there, 30 minutes go by, nobody shows up. Can you imagine putting out 60,000 flyers and nobody shows up to your prayer meeting? But he continues to pray. By the end of that 30 minute prayer session, six people showed up to the prayer meeting. But you know what he decides? Eh, that's not a failure, we'll just keep going. So he does it next week. He does it the week after. A month later, it's doubled. Two months later, it's tripled. To the point where a few months go by and this entire church that they're meeting at, every single room, every single hallway, every single staircase is filled to the brim with people praying during their lunch break in New York City. This expands so much to the point that one day, this is crazy, one day a news reporter is up in, up in their building and they hear the lunch bell going off in New York City. And they say that they look out the window and they see thousands of people rushing out of their workplaces and into churches. And so this news reporter goes, hey, we need to figure out where all these people are going. Like what in the world is happening? Where are these people running to? So they send news reporters and they find out that everybody in New York City is running during their lunch break to a prayer meeting. So this moves from being from one church to multiple churches all across New York City. And it moves from being a once a, once a week prayer meeting to happening every single day on their lunch break. And it was said that you could be in these big, expanded not just from New York City, but to the entire Eastern seaboard of America. Every single major city was having noonday prayer every single day during the week. Now, can you imagine going to a major city during lunch and there's not a single person at lunch. There's not a single person shopping. Everybody's in the, in the churches praying. And some miracles, some miracles started to take place in these prayer meetings. People would be praying for family members by name who were lost. And the next day, those family members would show up. Nobody invited them and they would give their life to Jesus. Crazy things would happen. Like ships would be coming into the ports of New York City and, and, um, and these uh, ship operators, why am I blanking on what a ship operator is? A captain, thank you very much, a ship operator. <laughs> these captains, these captains would be bringing their boats into New York City. And the closer these boats got to New York City, at one point, the, the presence of God would just fall on these ships 
and they would come out on the decks of these ships and all of their sailors are on their knees, repenting of their sins. And the captains are like, I don't know what's happening right now. So they come into the parlors or the, 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 the ports and they're like, can somebody go get a pastor to come preach the gospel to my ship? And they would go to these churches and find pastors and send them to the ships and these entire ships would come to Jesus. Like, this is revival, right, New Song students? So here's what I, I say all of that. I, I share with you this story of Zinzendorf and the Moravians changing missionary history. I share this story about John Wesley having a complete failure to his start to ministry, but then God's still using him. I share with you the businessmen's revival to show you that God just used a prayer meeting, just a one hour unglamorous prayer meeting to change all of New York City, all to say this, why not New Song students? Can we get that photo up there? Why, why not this group of people right here? I know not everybody is in this photo because this is taken at camp, but here's my question, New Song students, why not us? Why can't God do something like that through us? What, what I'm here to tell you tonight is he absolutely can. God absolutely can use this crazy group of students to change our schools, to change our city, to change our state, to change our nation. I believe that, do you, New Song students? Are you crazy enough to believe that God could use us to change a nation? I am. Why not us? Why not? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we get ready to respond to these stories?